As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, along with Tom Keene and Jonathan Farrow. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. What gives? Let's ask that question to Michael Gapin, head of U.S. economics at Bank of America Securities. Michael, what is your reaction, given the fact that markets seem to be a little put off by consistently disinflationary data? I think the markets had, well, first of all, good morning, Lisa and Katie. Um, thanks for having me on. I, I think markets had priced this, this in already with the CPI data in hand and the PPI data in hand. We can make a pretty good projection of where PCE should come in. And we did expect the headline to be down a tenth and the core to only be up a tenth. So this number really wasn't a surprise to us. And if you if you do the implied CPI forecast from market prices, they're they're looking for pretty soft inflation over the next three to six months. So I think that the markets had largely priced in this number, as as we all know, they're looking for about twice as many cuts this year as the Fed has has planned. So I think this was a status quo number for markets. That might be status quo. The durable goods orders, as Katie pointed out, not so much. It came in significantly higher than expected. And I wonder if on the margins there's some anxiety that it, it seems sort of incompatible that we could get ongoing better than expected growth while still seeing that disinflation that everyone's been hoping for. Yeah, there's certainly a limit to that, right? So, so, so far, the, the narrative is that the economy can cool, growth can remain modest or moderate, um, but away from recession, and we can experience both moderate growth and disinflation at the same time. That's that's our view. I think that's the Fed's view for sure, um, and why they've shifted to say a more balanced reaction function between bringing inflation down and wanting to support a soft landing. But you're right. There's a limit to that. There is a risk to shifting to a dovish stance now and coming out of the December meeting and tilting the outlook towards rate cuts because markets have reacted quite quickly and financial conditions have eased. So the, the risk is that maybe you, you gin things up too much and, and you don't make as much progress as you want on the inflation front. So um, no free lunch in, in that regard. We think the Fed's in a good spot. We do think rate cuts are, are coming, but you, you make a good point. Too, too much easing, too much easing in financial conditions could ultimately mean inflation is stickier to come down or maybe even rises a little bit and kind of puts off some of these rate cuts that the market is expecting. 
Well, let's talk about just the magnitude of the rate cuts that the market is expecting. Of course, 150 basis points priced into next year. A big gulf between that and what we saw in the dot plot, just 75 basis points of cuts penciled. And when you take in totality what we learned today when it comes, of course, to PCE, to personal income, to spending, and of course, uh, those durable goods orders, where does this land in terms of what the market is expecting? Do those six uh, rate cuts look justified at this juncture? I, I think the inflation data certainly support the idea that the Fed can start in, in March. So uh, assuming the data flow trends in the way that it has with, with a lot of evidence of disinflation and modest growth, but a cooling economy, we do think rate cuts can start in March a little earlier than the Fed thinks. We would say you know, curb your enthusiasm a bit for 150 or maybe more rate cuts over the course of, of the year, because <clears throat> we do think inflation will be a little more slower to come down. So we agree on the start earlier than, than later, but our view is you get about 100 basis points of cuts. So the market may need to reprice some of these as the data comes in. So, okay, maybe that process back to target will be slower than expected. Compare that to what we heard from Jerome Powell last week. He said that he was reluctant to say that the last mile of this inflation fight will be more difficult. Is that your expectation or just slower than expected uh, sort of imply there's some pain ahead? No, I, I, would, I would agree that at least, the, you know, again, the composition of the data flow that we've been seeing I think suggests we can enjoy modest growth and disinflation. And it does suggest that the last mile may not be overly difficult, right? So that, that does come from supply side effects, both on goods and on services where reemployment has, has really helped uh, increase services outputs that so we're getting a supply side effect there. As everyone knows, core goods have been falling for six months. So we'll see if things like shipping issues out of the Red Sea change that narrative. But otherwise, the, the last three to six months worth of data suggests maybe we can, you know, it's more likely than not that we can get down to 2% consistent outcomes without needing to generate significant pain in labor markets, which well, would be a great outcome for the Fed, the, you know, the average U.S. household and the average U.S. business. It's, it would be a great outcome for the economy. Well, I want to talk about that a little bit more because inflation has been en enemy number one from the Fed's perspective for really the last couple of years now. But now as we continue to get this march lower when it comes to some of these uh, figures, does the Fed's focus shift here? Do they start paying more attention to economic growth, to the labor market, et cetera? Yeah, I still think inflation, bringing inflation down is the number one goal, given where inflation's been, where it is. And, you know, the, the Fed's internal consistency about, hey, we really control inflation. We set that long run inflation objective. We determine long run inflation outcomes. So that's it's, it's kind of, you know, it's in their blood, so to speak, and in their DNA. So I still think that's, you know, issue number one. But a very close issue number two, if not closer to balanced, is, hey, I think we can soft land this economy. We don't need to generate as much pain in labor markets as we thought we might have had to do six to nine months ago. So we should keep an eye out. Uh, for that. So yes, it, it does make an argument that one of the reasons why the market has so many cuts priced in is both of the both of those cases moving to a more balanced reaction function in an environment where the economy is cooling and inflation is slowing, that just increases the odds you're likely to get rate cuts. So I think the market is listening to that message.
Michael, what's the gap between uh, just weakening that is good and weakening that is bad? And I ask this because I'm trying to still understand the uh, language out of the CFO's office at Nike when they said that demand is cooling faster than they expected, revised downwards some of their expectations for sales, talked about cutting jobs. Is this something that is just an idiosyncratic business overlaid with a weakening economy in a good sense, or is this potentially something bad? Yeah, I, th I think I would put that narrative probably inside the, you know, the rotation story away from goods purchases back to services. The good side of the economy, the manufacturing sector has been kind of on the edge, if not in a mild recession for some time now, um, at least in terms of, you know, production and inventory adjustment and so forth. So I think the good side of the economy is, is reacting in part to that rotation story. Um, what still looks pretty solid is, is activity and employment on the services side of the ledger, which is you know, two-thirds or more of, of output. So I think, the, you know, the, to, to use your phrasing, the, quote, good slowing and cooling uh, is about the rotation story, the end of the COVID reopening impulse. Things should naturally slow down anyway. We need to provide an environment for the economy to do that while we bring inflation down without tamping on the brakes too hard. So you're right, there's a fine line between slowing that we think should happen as a result of a very unusual pandemic-driven cycle. And oops, we've got the monetary policy setting calibrated incorrectly. It's too tight. We have to back out of it more quickly. Does anything about the services inflation concern you, given the fact that it still is running above what you would expect for 2% consistent inflation? Yeah, certainly shelter and kind of the structural issues in the, in the housing market without a lot of supply and inventory and available homes to uh, to contract for sale or purchase. Uh, so the shelter story, shelter is moderating. It is coming down, but it's coming down more slowly than our models would have suggested. So we think that there's stickiness there. And even non-shelter services inflation has, has been more sticky. So this is where we would say, maybe, you know, curb your enthusiasm. We have inflation for PCE coming down to around two and a half year on year by the end of this year, uh, where market implied pricing is closer to two. So it's easy to see how a, a, a stickier inflation path could mean some of these rate cuts are not realized. Michael Gapin of Bank of America Securities. Joining us now is someone who's gotten it right all year. Ed Yardeni, president of Yardeni Research, called for the Roaring Twenties, is leaning into that now, talking about disinflation. We're seeing it now. What keeps you up at night, Ed, considering that so far you've gotten a lot of things very right? Well, I've been sleeping pretty well, quite honestly. Um, I, I guess I do worry about the uh, Middle East, the geopolitical situation, uh, the, the fog of war. You never know how things uh, unfold once a war starts. And we have this fairly contained localized war uh, in Gaza. And uh, that the risk is that it becomes a regional war and it affects the price of, uh, of oil. But so far, the price of oil has been telling, telling, me, telling me that uh, there's not going to be a, a regional war. Uh, going on here any anytime soon. So putting aside uh, some of those tail risks, is the risk in your mind that people aren't bullish enough, considering that everyone's been uh, upping their expectations right. for end of the year targets, but we're catching up to it really quick already, and it hasn't even been the end of the year. Yeah, I think that's true. I uh, At the beginning of the year, I was talking about 4,600, and I wasn't bullish enough. We're already above that uh, for the end of this year. And then I'm looking for 5,400 next year and now there's uh, more people talking about over 5000 
And then for 2025, I'm talking about 6,000. So I, I, th I think I'm bullish enough. I, I don't think uh, things can get much better than that. So that's that's kind of at the top end of the scale on, on optimism, I think. Uh, but I think in the near term here, we've got uh, everybody seems to be too happy, uh, at least in terms of the sentiment indicators. So that's on a near term basis. I don't lose any sleep over it, but I do watch it. And with only, what, a week or so left until 2024, the fact that everyone is maybe too happy right now, is that why you haven't boosted your year-end target for this year? I believe that was at 4,600, and uh, we're pretty firmly above that right now, Ed. Yeah, well, you know, I, I don't uh, fine-tune my, my, my forecast uh, that much because uh, we are, as you said, we're only a week away, so what's the point of uh, getting cute about it? Uh, instead, I'm, uh, I did, did uh, talk, I am talking about 5,400, by the end of next year and 6,000 after that. So that's that just puts me in the bullish camp pretty pretty clearly. Yeah, if I, uh, of course, had to put out these forecasts, I think I'd revise on like December 30th every year and just nail it every single time. But I do want to talk a little bit about 2025 because 6,000 is a staggering number and 2025 feels very, very far away. What yes. is the work that gets you there and how do you project that with uh, a certain degree of confidence? Well, uh, first, uh, and, and a short-term basis, um, looks like there's still some uh, what I call die-hard hardlanders who think that we're going to have a recession next year. I've been talking about a rolling recession for the past two years, and I think uh, in the next in the next two years we'll have rolling recoveries. Uh, clearly, we're starting to see a rolling recovery in the housing market. I think we've bottomed in terms of uh, retail. Uh, uh, merchandise, a lot of uh, inventories piled up. Now I think consumers are going to go back next year and buy some goods in addition to services. And I think commercial real estate will uh, be in a rolling recession uh, in this coming year. But then beyond that, I think there will be a recovery. So I, I think uh, that's the way I look at the business cycle is sort of spread out. But most importantly, I think we've got a labor shortage, significant chronic labor shortage. And I think companies will uh, use technology to increase productivity dramatically. Right now, we're averaging about 1.8% over the past five years. I think that by the end of the decade, we'll be looking at 35 to 4.5%, which sounds uh, far-fetched, if not delusional, I admit. Uh, but uh, that's the way uh, productivity boom cycles have gone in the past. And this one should do the same. Does it worry you at all? And I realize that anecdotes can't tell entire stories and you can't extrapolate out an entire research paper from one particular example. But let's take a look at Nike. They came out and they said that they're going to be cutting workers. They're going to be having cost cuts. And it is because, uh, yes, they are working down their inventory, but because of weakness and weakness that they expect to continue going mm -hmm. forward. Does that kind of contradict some of your optimism about the recovery in the retail space? Yeah. Well, that's a good point. And that's why I think uh, a lot of forecasters missed the, the past couple of years and had this attitude that uh, or view that the only way inflation could come down in the United States is if we have a recession. Uh, you mentioned the, the phrase immaculate uh, dis disinflation. And I think that's what we've had. We've had inflation come down without a recession. And the reason for that is because the Chinese and the Europeans have done us a great favor. They've had the recession. So on a global basis, uh, particularly China has been exporting deflation and their PPI is down on a year-over-year -year basis. Even their CPI is down a little bit on a year-over-year -year basis. So I think the United States is uh, going to uh, benefit from uh, the recession, uh, the property depression in China for a long time in terms of having a low inflation. 
And I think Europe starts to recover from its shallow recession next year, which will help us on the export side. And let's bring this conversation to the bond market because uh, the reversal that we've seen there has been stunning. And of course, you've done a lot of great work on deficits, what that means for bonds and the demand for bonds. And it felt like for a while, maybe the bond vigilantes were Mm -hmm. reappearing. Why did deficit concerns seem to fall off the radar? Yeah, I've I've, uh, had the point of view for many years that I'll care about the deficit when the bond market cares about the deficit. In the past, supply really hasn't been much of a problem because you get the biggest supply in recessions when interest, the Fed was cutting interest rates. Uh, we had this brief period where the bond vigilantes saddled up and started to uh, to move uh, on concerns of uh, fiscal excesses, and that uh, period didn't last very long. Uh, basically, from August to October, we saw this uh, monstrous increase in uh, the 10-year bond yield from basically 4.25% to 5%. And here we are back below 4%. Uh, I think, uh, you know, there's an expression, uh, don't fight the Fed. Um, Maybe we should also say don't fight Janet Yellen now that she's a Treasury, uh, because she very cleverly cut back on the supply of uh, long-term bonds and notes and uh, issued a lot of bills. And the bond vigilante said, oh, if that's the way you're going to play the game, we can live with that. Meanwhile, I think the big story has been how inflation's come down. I mean, it's been only the past couple of months that the consensus really has become that we can't have uh, immaculate uh, disinflation. Uh, even Fed Chair Powell in his press conference seemed to indicate that, you know what, we, we may actually get it. And everybody let out a collective cheer, and you still hear that cheer today. Ed Denny of your Denny Research. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising healthcare costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Kim Wallace, head of Washington Policy Research at 2022 uh, 22V Research, joining us here in studio for the holiday party, for the holiday spirit, uh, for New York City. Thank you so much for being with us. We really appreciate it. Good morning. Happy to be here. Good morning. Uh, I know that you put out an outlook for what to expect in 2024, and I want to start an industrial policy hinging off the latest news of U.S. Steel and some of the administration pushback to a Japanese conglomerate purchasing the largest steelmaker in the country. 
Well, you know, there's a lot of analysis that will go into the ultimate reaction from the administration. Obviously, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the U.S. will investigate the proposed merger. But when you break it down, the promises made by Nippon probably upset a few people on the political side, but don't, in my view at least, imply disruption to the production of steel in the U.S. The deal proposes to combine globally number four and number 27. So the first question for the uh, competition policy reviewers is, is it a global market you're defining when you review the deal or the national market? My sense is it'll be a global market. And if that's the case, we look at Japan as a strategic partner. It's difficult to imagine that if Japan can't close a deal like this, that anyone can close a deal like this. Do you think the Biden administration has been consistent with industrial policy? On one hand, talking about America first in some ways and uh, talking about unionization but not necessarily celebrating the fact that the United States is pumping a record amount of oil, which has really offset a lot of the prices, and kept gasoline low. I think they've been as consistent as you can be as a policymaker in this environment. A couple of points there. First, we have started from a very low point in industrial production and manufacturing. We gave away that base in the 90s and the first part of this century. Reclaiming it is going to take a long time. The report that the National Economic Council and the National Security Council put out in June of 2021 quantified how far back the U.S. is. The president then sought to make up a gap there. Congress joined them. This has been a bipartisan uh, effort, particularly in infrastructure. Uh, so we are way behind the ball when it comes to the, in the U.S. when it comes to infrastructure, when it comes to chips, semiconductors. Uh, we have a long way to go. Deals like this have to be reviewed from all of those perspectives we talked about, but ultimately, what's best for the U.S. in terms of short-term supplies and then longer-term building out of the industrial base. That's part of the President's proposal in the emergency supplemental. Almost $60 billion for a defense industrial base, $3 billion of that to build more submarines. And you bring up chips, and that's where I want to go, because you think about the U.S.-China relationship, obviously still a lot of tensions there, a lot of that playing out in the semiconductor arena. But when you look over the totality of 2023, how has the U.S.-China relationship evolved? It has stabilized, and the optics are better, against the backdrop of severe competition competition across a lot of platforms, and that's not going to change. We see that almost daily. We saw it this week in critical minerals. Mm. And so uh, when China decides that it's not going to allow the export of processing technology for critical minerals, that's a shot across the bow. It again points to a deficiency in the U.S. industrial base and something that it, it's hard to make this political if you look at it from an economic standpoint. Of course, people will make it political. But making up for the deficiency will require decades, mm -hmm. not just years. Well, in the context of critical minerals and, of course, uh, the news that we saw this week, both on that front and also that U.S. steel, uh, Nippon deal, you talked about Japan as a strategic ally here. And when you think about the arena of critical, mir uh, not miracles, minerals, and, uh, of course, the competition going on there, how important does that make Japan and potentially other partners? It's that last part, Katie, potentially other partners. Japan is critically important. There is no Indo-Pacific strategy strategy, which is important to this administration, without Japan. And that goes back to my saying, if Japan can't close deals, then no one can. But it's the other players. What we saw at the beginning of the APEC week that didn't get a lot of attention was a national security partnership signed between Indonesia and the U.S. 
U.S. sends defense technology, defense know-how. Indonesia promises to send critical minerals eventually. It's part of a very sophisticated program. Sophistication is necessary given how far back the U.S. is, in my view. Taking a step back, you've gotten plenty of accolades for your research and for your uh, view forward, particularly when it comes to politics, which recently has been a black box uh, of absolutely impenetrable predictions. But I'm wondering next year what you see as some of the bigger market-related risks stemming from Washington, D.C. at a time where there's a lot on the table, not just industrial policy. I think there are big four. Uh, the first quarter will be consumed by fiscal policy. What does Washington do around funding for FY24 and what does it do about the supplemental requests around wars? I think that morphs into first, second quarter. What's the result of the Fed's business over the last two years? How does that play out in the economy? Normalization at this part of the cycle means tightening. Normalization soon will mean the other side. <clears throat> that leads into, in my view at least, concerns about liquidity both official liquidity, private liquidity. It is the, um, it's the topic very few people want to address in public, but something that pops up on a regular basis as a concern among traders all the time, both official and private liquidity. That morphs into the back end of the year and the elections and what's happening in terms of the outcome of the elections, what that implies for the country going forward and for policy in 2025. And just in terms of the market risk there, meaning that as liquidity tightens, people will be more focused on that and the potential deficit and the potential inability of the U.S. to spend well, and all of those issues. Well, that and the issues around the federal home loan banks, the administration is constrained the advances that they can make to member institutions. There's discussion about paying less for reserves at the Fed and forcing that money out into the economy or somewhere else. Um, there are, and, and as QT goes on, we have a lot of tightening of liquidity in the system to follow. Kim Wallace, thank you so much for being with us. Wonderful to see you in person. Kim Wallace of 22V Research, thank you. Joining us now, Deborah Cunningham, Global Liquidity Market CIO at Federated Hermes. Not on that at all. Uh, Deborah, thank you so much for being with us. I want to start with this idea that people uh, have been talking a lot about cash on the sidelines. And uh, we've talked about this before and how cash on the sidelines are going to start flooding into risk assets. Have you seen any evidence of that over the past couple of weeks? Not really, Lisa. It's not something, generally speaking, people at the end of the year are trying to, you know, kind of allocate and close out their books in in, the, in a normal fashion. And there may be some surprises, either cash inflows or cash outflows, things close, things don't close that we're so, supposed to. Um, but ultimately, it's not a great time in, in a normal situation for you know, what I call reallocation. That happens more at the beginning of the year. So um, we have not been experiencing or seeing that type of, of market shift at this point and, and cash flow out. Well, I do want to get to what happens at the start of next year and in 2024. But I know I just said that AI and Ozempic have been really the stock market stories of this year. But I want to add a third thing, which has been the rush into money market funds. Of course, one of the big stories in markets this year, about $6 trillion sitting in money market funds right now. Where is that coming from? Is that investors saying, look at these high yields, I'm going to go there? Or is that people moving away, taking money out of their bank deposits for example, and shifting into money market funds? 
I think the bulk of it is coming from the deposit market. Um, it's coming in as a retail trade, so it's a pretty steady trade. Um, and if you look at what shifted out of, of retail deposits in, during the year, it's been about 1.3 trillion, and about a trillion has gone into money market funds. So it's hard to follow dollar for dollar exactly where cash goes. Um, but the, you know, from all we can tell, I'd say at least 80% of that is coming from the, the, the retail deposit uh, market where rates from a banking perspective just didn't follow you know, short-term rates uh, at, at, in the market upwards with the Fed. Now there has been in the last quarter, just really since we flipped into the fourth quarter, October and November, a little bit more of a cash flow from an institutional type of customer and i think that has to do with you know the 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 flattening to you know to some degree inverted yield curve where the shorter end of the curve is no longer as attractive necessarily as what a product that has some weighted average maturity like a money market fund does so we're starting to see some of that trade i would see more of i would expect to see more of that trade though in 2024 so just to meditate on that point a little bit longer that potentially 80% of what we've seen come into money market funds has been coming from uh, deposits. How sticky is that money? Because it feels like one of the assumptions is that what we're seeing in money market funds that belongs to the equity market or that belongs to risk assets and it's going to return there. But if that's coming from bank deposits, that logic doesn't quite make sense. That's exactly right, and and certainly there is some, there are some risk assets that are in there as a hiding place, a, you know, a short-term home until they feel like you know their entry point back into their risk asset class is um, more palatable for them. But that's certainly not the bulk of what we've been seeing. Now maybe that you know will pick up again um, in 2024, but it's not been what we've seen mostly in 2023. It's come through the deposit market, through the retail trade, with the likely of that being very sticky. And I think the other thing that makes that a stickier trade than it has been even over the course of the last 15 years is we, as well as the market, and I don't think anybody out there expects the Fed to normalize at zero where they have been, you know, 12 out of the last 15 years. Um, the expectation is the normalization is back to, you know, three, three and a half, maybe 4%, depending upon where uh, inflation plays out. And so that again keeps that retail trade generally in the market rather than back rather than back in deposits. So do you just sort of reject, Deborah, this idea of cash on the sidelines flooding into markets once the Federal Reserve has cut rates one, two, three, or even more times next year? No, I don't reject it at all. I just don't think it's all coming out of money market funds. I think there, I think cash continues to come out of deposit products, and I think some some goes into the direct markets through that, you know, from that, from that mode. And I do believe there will be some that comes out of money market funds, but I certainly don't think it's a, you know, it's it's the vast majority of of what will, you know, let's let's say fuel the markets, the risk asset markets in 2024. Just real quick here, Deborah, are you seeing money go out of short term and go into longer term? Is that a theme? It started. We run micro short and ultra short funds that are really just, you know, a modest step out the yield curve in the one to two, two and a half year sector. And we're starting to see positive cash flow in those products. But it's trickling. It's not a it's certainly not any kind of a flood. Deborah Cunningham, thank you so much for being with us. Nobody ever says make it complicated. 
That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank. Because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. I really want to get a sense of where we are heading into this, what kinds of disruptions we can expect, how people are paying for their travel, whether they are traveling. Brian Kelly, founder of The Points Guy, who did advise that I get rid of my points and spend them. Thank you for that. Trying to work them down. What do you expect in terms of this particular holiday season? Are we going to see another Southwest episode? Are things looking like they're pretty orderly? Are people going to have a not really deep, deeply uncomfortable experience? Well, I'm an internal optimist and things are looking really good, right? So the, uh, the Thanksgiving holiday in November, we saw the most amount of air travelers ever, 2.9 million go through the TSA and things were pretty smooth. And the biggest factor that I see would be weather. And right now there's no major weather patterns that I see that could upend our air travel system. So I am forecasting, hopefully smooth sailing uh, for the next 10 days. We had 2.5 million people through the TSA yesterday, relatively low delays and cancellations. So fingers crossed, but I think this is going to be a good holiday travel season and certainly much better than last year. Especially given some of those delays. International, though, uh, does face some potential uh, headwinds, in particular some of the strikes that we've been hearing about in the United Kingdom, elsewhere in Europe. Is that on your radar at all or is that basically just sort of hand wringing as people have to find something to worry about if they're not eternal optimists like yourself? Yeah. No, you know, anytime you travel to Europe, you have to worry about, you know, strikes. It can happen any day. It's much different here than the U.S. But, uh, you know, in Spain, there will be strikes uh, with Iberia's ground staff around the New Year holiday. Yesterday, we saw the Eurostar have a surprise strike that displaced a lot of people. They're actually not even selling trains today between uh, Paris and London. So but overall, there might be some German train strikers here or there. But um, hopefully no widespread strikes that we're aware of. And so how should travelers think about that? Say that they do have a holiday European vacation booked. I mean, should they be thinking about insurance here or how to best handle that? Yeah, so what most people don't realize is when you use your premium travel credit card, as I'm assuming many people watching this program do, whether that's Amex Platinum, Chase Sapphire, Capital One Venture, those cars, cards come with built-in perks. And this is what people don't realize. Um, if you're, my, I was traveling to Puerto Rico in May and my flight was delayed like 10 hours uh, by United for a mechanical reason. United gave me a $100 e-gift card and told me to go away. 
And but American Express refunded five hundred dollars for me to get a hotel, to get Ubers, to go out to dinner in Old San Juan. So always go to your credit card company for compensation. And when traveling to Europe, there's a rule called EU 261 compensation. And if you're traveling to or from Europe um, and there's a flight delay for pretty much any reason, they are mandated by the government to give you compensation. Um, so. Yes, go to the airline, but generally the airlines are pretty cheap when it comes to compensation. Your credit card is where it's at. The only time I really recommend travel insurance is if you're going on that mega trip on a big expensive cruise line, safari, you're bringing uh, you know, people who could get sick abroad where you might need that evacuation coverage. Mm. So, but in general, your credit cards protect you a lot more than you realize. Yeah, so maybe uh, you actually should read the fine print uh, there. But what are you actually seeing in terms of where people are going when it comes to this holiday season? Are they going abroad or is much of the travel that you're seeing booked and happening right now within the country? Yeah, I mean, most of the travel growth we're seeing is international. It's funny, I was looking up where are the deals for uh, I was just searching from New York and the best travel deals were Miami, Orlando. And a year or two years ago, we all knew Miami flights were like $2,000 each, crazy rates. So we've seen some of that demand from domestic travel now. Uh, we're seeing huge increases. United Airlines just started flying nonstop from San Francisco to Christchurch, New Zealand. They're betting big on uh, the Pacific region, new flights to Tahiti. And so I think there are a lot of travelers who now feel comfortable traveling internationally, doing that big trip. Japan, I'm going there in February, we're seeing huge increases in, in that type of travel. And also when it comes to lodging, uh, we're seeing a huge increase. Hotels.com saw 125% increase in authentic lodging. So whether that's a Ryokan in Japan or staying at a Riyadh in Morocco, I think travelers are sick of paying for overpriced cookie cutter hotels and are willing to shell out for those luxury experiences. Are they looking for discounts or is this still very much the experience world that's just continuing? And is this a, basically a sea change that has legs where experiences will keep seeing people pay up for some of these unique experiences, uh, even if they don't buy a shirt and an outfit uh, that's fancy to accompany it? Yeah, people, you know, funny enough, discounts are happening domestically. JetBlue just ran a $50 off fare sale, Southwest. So uh, the domestic airfare market and those carriers are struggling where the premium cruise lines that are just launching, there's tons of new, really exclusive ships. I just did expedition cruising is huge. I'm seeing more and more of my friends go to Antarctica. Uh, I just went on Swan Hellenic to Greenland, and that was an incredible experience. Um, so, yeah, people are shelling out for unique, bespoke experiences. That sector of the market is cannot grow fast enough. It's and even, I mean, domestically, theme park travels big. Disney still con uh, continues to see growth. And it's not just Disney. Dollywood uh, just increased prices and opened up new parts of their park, Mattel. So people really want to take their families, not just to a, a beach vacation, but they want to go and experience the new Mattel theme park that just opened up in Arizona. They really want these unique experiences. And, and that's a trend I can uh, foresee happening more and more. And Brian, you are the points guy, so let's talk about uh, some news that broke this week. It was first reported by Reuters basically about the Department of Transportation in the early stages of looking into airline frequent flyer programs, really checking whether airlines have engaged in unfair or deceptive practices when it comes to some of those programs. What do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, I think it's much needed. A lot of times there are changes that happen overnight and, you know, 
it can be said that the airlines are banks nowadays. The airlines are making more money selling their currencies of frequent flyer uh, programs to banks. So I do think there needs to be a little bit more consumer heads up, right? If you're going to have this multi-billion dollar loyalty program that essentially is a bank where, you know, you're creating your own currency, um, you should give consumers notice when making negative changes. We saw this year Delta and American Express rolled out some uh, pretty punitive changes to their credit cards, increasing fees, et cetera. And there was huge consumer backlash uh, to mostly Delta on that one. And we saw them roll back some of their changes. Now, do I think the government needs to come in and regulate every aspect of loyalty programs? Probably not. But having some more consumer protections when those negative changes happens, I think are a good thing for everyone involved because people are getting sick of just constantly changing and moving up the goalposts. And waiting in line at the uh, at the lounge. I mean, that Eight might lines. be part of the issue. Yeah, I mean, Brian Kelly, thank you so much for being with us. Brian Kelly of The Points Guy, thank you, uh, as always. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Lisa Abramowitz, and this is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.